Thank you, Kelly, and thank you everyone again for being here. It is really uh, an honor and a pleasure to introduce my wonderful mentor, colleague, and friend, Dr. Terry Fulmer. Um, Dr. Fulmer is the president of the John A. Hartford Foundation in New York City, uh, a foundation dedicated to improving the care of older adults. As we say in the field, uh, the Hartford Foundation really put geriatrics on the map, um, so we're so so grateful um, for what has happened in geriatric nursing, geriatric social work, geriatric medicine. Um, Dr. Fulmer is an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine. She previously served as the Distinguished Professor and Dean of Health Sciences at Northeastern University. Prior to that, she served as the Erlen Perkins McGriff Professor and Dean at the New York University School of Nursing. Um, and she received her bachelor's degree from Skidmore College, her master's and doctoral degrees from Boston College, and her geriatric nurse practitioner postmaster's certificate from NYU. She completed a Brookdale National Fellowship and was the first nurse to serve on the board of the American Geriatric Society and the first nurse to serve as the president of the Gerontological Society of America. Dr. Fulmer is nationally and internationally recognized as a leading expert in geriatrics and is best known for conceptualization and development of the National Niche Program, which we have implemented here, by the way, uh, and research on the topic of elder abuse and neglect, work that has been funded by NIA and the National Institute of Nursing Research. She is a trustee for the Josiah Macy Junior Foundation, Springer Publishing, the Bassett Healthcare System, and is co-chair of the National Academy of Medicine's Forum on Aging, Disability, and Independence. We are absolutely thrilled that Dr. Fulmer is here, and I will, I could go on uh, for the next 10 minutes with her accolades, as you can well imagine, but thank you, Terry, for coming, and welcome. Live. There we go. Thank you so much. And one of my most important claims to fame is that I was the dissertation chair for Ellen Flaherty. <laughs> and uh, she worked with me tirelessly for a number of years on our Git program. And, and when Ellen calls, I show up. And so it's the thrill to be here and to be among all of you at this important time in uh, clinical care where there's so much um, changing so quickly and the pressure has never been greater. And at the same time, all of us are smart people who have so many good ideas and so much energy. So to be with you today is a great pleasure. And you might imagine that I, I I've talked quite a bit about uh, our initiatives from the foundation. In the past month, I've talked to, I was in uh, Boise, Idaho. I was with the Joint Commission, the, Amer the ACL, the N4A. And each time I'm with an audience, there's a different frame, a different lens that I think about. I think, what would this group want to hear about? And so today you'll hear me think with you about academic health centers on our program, age-friendly health systems, and also measurement. And so those are two themes that you'll hear me comment on. And then, of course, we'll, I'll be directed by you as to what will be of most interest. So I think I can use this. Yeah, there we go. The John A. Hartford Foundation in New York City, dedicated to improving care of older adults, as Ellen pointed out. And we have three priority areas, our age-friendly health system work, our support for family caregiver work, and our serious illness, improving serious illness, end-of-life care. And everybody in the room knows instantly that those three interact and intersect all day long for everyone. And so um, it, it's almost sometimes as you tease it apart a little bit of a, a false dissection, but it doesn't matter because our work informs each other constantly. And uh, our money's from A&P grocery stores. Some of you in the room will remember them. Uh, uh, and so John and George Harford. So we have spent about $600 million uh, over the last, since 80, 
to really build the field of aging, as Ellen pointed out, and think about the models of care that could be tested and replicated to improve the care of older people. And so that's what we're dedicated to this moment, and we will continue. I mentioned our family caregiving. We know that more than 18 million people are family caregivers of older adults, and that's a conservative estimate. If you talk to AARP, they'll say 40. Um, these slides are available to everybody. If you'd like a copy, Ellen will make sure you have them. And, and so we focus a lot on family caregivers and what needs to happen. And most recently, I'm talking with Joe Coughlin at the MIT AIDS Lab about launching uh, additional work on what he calls his family caregiver panel. And if you've heard him, he's a very interesting guy. Serious illness and end-of-life care. We've had the privilege of funding CAPSI. We have an initiative that uh, pulls together the leadership organizations. Uh, Jeffrey Bach is one of the people who is leading that with us. Diane Meyer, Susan Block, you know the names. Where we really think about making palliative care uh, more widely available, and you'll hear that resonate through this work today. And then our age-friendly health systems. Um, Few hospitals and health systems alone meet the needs of older adults. And so we are, um, this will really be the essence of my talk today, focusing on what matters to older adults, improving health outcomes, and achieving the triple aim. So I, I always say to people, you know, the greatest success story of the 20th century is longevity. Pacemaker, renal dialysis, antibiotics, you name it. And so it's a wonderful thing. But now we have those older people and our moral responsibility is to take care of them and make sure that they get great care. And when I was a staff nurse at the Beth Israel, I worked with amazing physicians, nurses, social workers. But there was a phenomena that was very strong. It was a strong narrative, and it was, and I'm going to use my own phrase, save them and scorn them. So somebody would make it, and they were no longer an interesting case. And, and I will tell you that, that we have not eliminated that phenomena yet. So thinking about the ways older adults contribute in vital ways, and again, this, uh, Joe just wrote a book called The Longevity Economy. Has anybody seen it? It's awesome. And so The Longevity Economy, where he talks about age as a, as a uh, social construct anyway that just doesn't help us as we move into this next phase with many people growing older. So this is the slide that I hate to see, don't like it, and this is the, the, you know, the dour look at, oh, my God, what are we going to do with all these old people, which is not a useful um, frame. Don't use it. Uh, when you see these, argue about it. And, and frameworks, and there's a guy named Nat Taylor, who is the president of Frameworks, who talks about reframing aging and how you talk about the, the opportunities instead of ridiculous slides like this. So care for older adults does need to change. We know that because we have poor coordination of care. And as I speak today, I will tell you, if you improve care for older adults, you improve care. If you improve care for older adults, you improve care. So we do have duplication of services, polypharmacy, error-prone transitions. Um, and uh, my, my daughter works in long-term care, and, and the transitions are tough as people come to her, and she has does not have the information she needs. Unnecessary hospitalizations and care discordant with patients' goals. And I tried yesterday and couldn't do it to make that the number one bar here, but there was some P PF whatever it was, that wouldn't allow me to do it. But, of course, concordant care with what people want is what we care about. All these pictures, by the way, we, we took a ton of pictures up at the uh, River Spring Health in Riverdale, so I want to just point out that many of these pictures are from those people, which is great fun. So IHI, how many of you have worked with the IHI uh, work? Okay, so if you've been, I'm going to be talking about them quite a bit today because our foundation made a very large grant to them to work on our age-friendly health system. So IHI has taught me about the, the no-do gap. We know a lot of things. We know that it's the usual frame we hear is there are 17 years between the time you know something and you use it. I think that has shortened a bit, but it's still not, not at all acceptable. So the other thing is that we know that the, uh, it's, we have pockets of excellence. If you think about this health system, you know that you have pockets of excellence, but you do not have 100% reliability the way each of us in this room would like. So difficult to disseminate and scale work, sometimes hard to reproduce in settings with less resources. And that could be another talk another time because we're working on a national elder abuse collaboratory for low resource settings. Um, and 
most do not apply across settings of care. And so what I'm, this is something that has been very important to us as we think about our age-friendly work. So the portion of programs that are reaching, uh, the geriatric programs, uh, we figure reach about 4 million of the 46 million older adults, and that's unacceptable. So that's uh, important to think about. So what is an age-friendly health system? Age-friendly care is reliable implementation of a set of evidence-based geriatric best practice interventions across four core elements known as the four M's. We call this a bundle for all older people in your system and across your system. What matters, mentation, medication, mobility. What matters, mentation, medication, mobility. I don't care what order it is as long as what matters first. Why do we have these? I'm going to tell you the story of how we got here, but to start our conversation, because you'll hear me talking about the four M's, you have to know and align care with each older person's specific health outcome goals and care preferences. I know you talk about this all the time. If medications are necessary, use age-friendly medicine. If they're not, and if they interfere with what matters, don't use them. Mentation, because it's an M. We could have used cognition, but no, we use mentation. <laughs> That's right. Uh, people say, what are you talking So uh, prevent and identify and treat dementia, depression, delirium, and then mobility, ensuring that older adults move safely every day. We have a, kind of eliminated the word falls when we talk about optimum mobility all the time. And Mary Tinetti is the person who really uh, said to us, you will, you will change your words. Okay, we did. So, and Mary's a co-chair of this work with us. Um, so ensuring that older adults move safely every day, wherever they are, for their function. I think about the four M's, and you'll hear me say this, as a window into best practice. Whenever I say four M's, somebody will say to me, I know a fifth one. I say, I bet you do. I bet you know a sixth one and a seventh one. You can add all you want, but I'm sticking with four. And so four M's, why? I go into a CEO suite and, and you know, I've got five minutes with the sound bite with these people to say, this is all we're talking about. And they relax because they say, okay, four things. I can do four things. And let me see your, your strategic plan, and I promise you I can show you how to map onto it. So that's our work. Age-friendly health systems result in better outcomes, reduced waste, increased utilization of cost-effective services, and improved reputation and market share. We talk about age-friendly as a social movement. This is not a project. By the time we're done, and I promise you, we will say that every person will say, I demand age-friendly health care for me and my friends and family. That's where we're heading. I don't know how long it's going to take me, but I'm not stopping until I do that. We want people to demand age-friendly. So this is Cater Maté. Anybody know him in the room? Cater is the, um, got a great title. He's Chief Innovation and Education Officer at IHI. He also has an appointment, clinical appointment at Cornell in New York City, and he lives in Virginia. Go figure, whatever. But that's Kadar, and Kadar is tireless in his work. We made the grant to IHI. Kadar is our PI, and he is a remarkable leader in this work. And our goal is to hit 20% of health systems by 2020, develop the what of age-friendly, the how of age-friendly, scale up, and create that social movement I just talked about. If you have the chance to meet Kadar, you should do it. He's really special. We like to remind people that age-friendly health systems should begin and end at your kitchen table. This is not a hospital project. It's a social movement across settings. And no matter how many times I talk to people, they'll say, but in our hospital, and I say, yeah, but we're not talking about your hospital. We're talking about the continuum of care um, because we've taught people to be hospital-centric, and so it's really thinking about the kitchen table. How do we start the work? Well, we had this fabulous meeting in August of 2016. I started with my trustees in 2015. In 2016, August, we had what I love to call our, our FOMO meeting. And you know that stands for fear of missing out meeting. So it was August 16th. People came in off the beach. Bruce left made me, you know, particularly guilty about telling me he had to leave his kids in some beach someplace. I said, I don't, that's fine with me. So we all came together. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work. Guilt does not work with me. <laughs> so we, we looked at all the geriatric care models, and there are many. Let's say there's like 
30 in the literature that everybody could agree to. Mike Malone has written a great book about geriatric care models. And we found that there were about 90 discrete core features identified by model experts. In the room that day, we had half CEOs, and, and the other half of the group were geriatric experts that everybody knows their name. And so we looked at them, and we found that they're redundant or similar concepts and we got down to about 13 core features synthesized by the IHI team. They did the lit review. And, you know, if you look at a niche model, you're going to see falls. You're going to see incontinence confusion. If you look at the ACE model, you're going to see those too. And so we decided that the vital few are the four M's. And there was great concordance in that moment because any of us like our own models. <laughs> you know, Sharon <laughs> likes help and Terry likes niche. Well, you can't do that. We say... Pick whatever model you want, but drive it through a 4M so that we can have, so that the public understands what we're talking about. And clinicians who are not inclined to think about geriatrics all the time as we do will resonate with the essence of what we want to work on. So the partnerships, and this is the power of Don Berwick. So when I was in Boston, I uh, had I was on the board of IHI. Don had was in Washington at CMS, and um, he came back. He ran for governor. I was living in Boston. I gave out flyers for Don because I was so impressed. Anybody who runs for governor, you know, what kind of work is that? They get, they get up at 3 in the morning. They're still at it at 3 in the morning. And, you know, through cocktail parties for him, never knowing that I would end up in New York, and Don would come to my office and say, let me help you. It's a very good thing when Don Berwick says, let me help you, because he's, he called these five systems, and he said, Terry needs you. She needs you to be the pilots for age-friendly with IHI. So Ascension, Providence, St. Joseph's, Anne Arundel, IHI, along with Kaiser Trinity. And our partners are the American Hospital Association, JBOT, and the HRET work, and the Catholic Health Association, Julie Trocchio, a one in six visits in the United States is with the Catholic health system, which I didn't know, but now I do. And you'll notice Ascension, Providence, St. Joseph's, Trinity. Um, uh, have any of you worked in any of those systems? So you walk in, and um, they're mission-driven. We, I went to Trinity. It's in, maybe it's Ascension, Livonia, Illinois. And you start your meeting with a prayer. You know, and you, all of a sudden you really understand that they are going to focus with you. So those are our systems, and those are the groups that are working with us, and they are phenomenal. Why Anne Arundel? Anne Arundel is an outlier here. If you know, it's in Maryland. It's a smaller system, but that's because Malik Joshi was at AHA, and when Malik moved to Anne Arundel, he said, I still want to be in, so he's in. So that's how that works. That's science for you, okay? <laughs> so core elements, we talked about what matters medications, mentation, mobility. And the M&Ms are what Anne Arundel uses at their system to really get people to focus on 4Ms and think about it. And we're like, fine, use whatever works for you. You'll notice in the bottom lower right we have a logo, Age-Friendly Health Systems, because immediately what I know from my niche work is you have to brand it really fast. Otherwise, everybody starts getting T-shirts, hats, and mugs that all look different, and then you can't tell your story. So that's our logo in the bottom right. And it's in IHA colors because this work should live on at IHI. Uh, they're the drivers. So I mentioned that we think of age-friendly as a gateway, of 4Ms as a gateway to age-friendly care. And we are institution-based and ambulatory-based, institution-based and ambulatory-based. That means institutions or hospitals in nursing homes, for example, or maybe a community setting that you live in, and then ambulatory and primary care, which I know Ellen wants to really focus on later in the day. Evidence. Well, what about the evidence? When I talk to any of you and say, please work with me, you would say, why should I? So what matters? Asking what matters lowers inpatient utilization by 54%, and ICU stays by 80%. and increases hospice by 47 and patient satisfaction quite dramatically. Medications older adults suffer adverse drug events, and they have higher rates of morbidity and hospital admissions. And so... 1,500 hospitals in the HEN project reduced 15,000 adverse drug effects. It really matters when you focus on medications for older people. Mentation depression in ambulatory care doubles the cost of care, and you have a 16 to 1 return on investment on delirium detection and treatment. 
And finally, mobility with older persons who sustain a serious fall, related injuries require an additional 13,000 in hospital costs and increased length of stay. So, so there's profound evidence, and that's why IHI agreed to work with us. Um, earlier, we tried to talk to IHI during our niche project early on, and they said we didn't have the literature evidence base that they had to have in order to launch it. But here, we have the evidence already, and, and it's working. So what are the key drivers? You have to know about your 4Ms. You have to act on them and incorporate them and make sure that they're in the work. I'll take you to the website later on in this talk, but we have a change package for institutions where we say, okay, figure out your 4Ms for each older adult you care about and act on how they will work in a plan of care. And so to the right, a set of drivers that talk about what, who will ask what matters and do it reliably. How will you document it? Maybe it'll be in your annual wellness visit as a, as a base, but, but how will it happen all the time? And how will you review medications, screen for delirium, mobility, align the plan, think about um, very specifics like oral hydration, orienting people, making sure people have their sensory equipment, preventing sleep interruptions. See, that's the gateway I'm talking about. If you start with your forearms, immediately you drive to these elements that are so important. In primary care, very similar. Uh, when you take a look at the right-hand column, you'll see um, uh, certain variations, but uh, in, all in all, that systematic reliability of how you think about your screening and aligning with the plan of care in figuring out how to ensure the well-being of older people. So age-friendly measures. I thought, here I am at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, you would certainly be saying to me, well, this looks like a lot of work. <laughs> and, uh, and it is, but we try to keep it as tight and as uh, bundled as possible with really specific measures. And IHI is very good at this. And so the age-friendly health system outcome measures are primarily the same as you currently collect, stratified by age. Your 30-day readmissions, you already collect that. Emergency department use, map to your strategic plan. And I, I haven't looked at your strategic plan beyond what I saw on the website. But you'll see, and I'll give you an example in a minute, how this work is right there. Goal concordant care, and then thinking of process measures where we think about the presence of a healthcare agent. We are using your collaborate that originated out of Dartmouth Hitchcock. We use it, it's embedded in age friendly, uh, the NQF 326 screen. And so those happen in the following way. And this is what I've learned, and maybe you knew this before me. And in, in IHI, they have two teams that work on breakthrough all the time your content experts and your measurement and, and uh, uh, reliability coaches. So you have a team of expert geriatric people, Mary Tonetti is working with us. I mentioned that Dave Rubin, Al Sue, Diane Meyer, Sue Block. And then you have the IHI team, measure, uh, reliability, um, triple aim, <clears throat> driving that site. And so they come together as teams. So this work is uh, from, from a result of concordance and agreement among those teams. So the outcome measures, tracking the whole system levels and thinking about how you stratify. And it was interesting. This is really the first project IHI has ever done on aging, has ever done on geriatrics. And that was uh, interesting to me. And they kept saying people over 65. And anybody in this room who knows anything about geriatrics knows that that is not a useful construct. It's really helping people segment the people with whom they take care of and think about the differences across those groups so that you can prevent harm. Um, thinking about age caps, thinking about golden Corton care, and healthcare workforce, joy in work as it is known. And there's a wonderful manual on the IHI website. This sounds like an IHI infomercial today, maybe it is but the joy and work module that, that helps capture how people feel about uh, their work day to day. And the National Academy of Medicine is doing a lot on that topic as well because we know it's a concern. And also the AAMC is as well. So thinking about the way that there, you can slow turnover and improve joy and work. Our process measures, 
documenting the NQF 326, thinking about how you document what matters in the patient record. I believe you're an EPIC system here. So um, if you've seen one EPIC, you've seen one EPIC. And I work at Mount Sinai in New York City, and it'll take me 12 clicks to get to something that I think, maybe you've got this nailed, but Mount Sinai and I do not. And so, uh, uh, you know, understanding how you will get to your screen that helps you understand age-friendly and 4Ms is something that um, we have Ashish Jha working on. Ashish is at Harvard. We gave him a grant. This is the greatest job ever. You give people a, job, a, a grant to do really, really hard work, <laughs> and then you work with them. I, you know, I've been on your side where I wrote, uh, you know, two grants a week for 38 years as an academic, and now I'm on the other side. And so I'll make a grant to people and say, so Ashish, if you're so smart, can you possibly work on this um, project where we get reliable transfer of information from acute care to long-term care. He says, yeah, sure, I can do that. And then he calls me and says, this is really hard. <laughs> and then I said, yeah, and so I'm so happy he's working on it with Julia uh, Milstein as well. So these are process measures that are a part of our work. Um, outcome measures, this is a sample uh, with proposed, if you think about institution and primary care, this is just another way of thinking about what you can get out of your system work already so you don't have to do it twice. Emergency department visits will be system. Your delirium is probably local. Some people use one screen, some use a different one, whether you're at UCSF or whether you're at you know, Anne Arundel, they vary. Collaborate questions, something we're using from your work, and then that uh, healthcare workforce joy and work. And I'll, I'll tell you um, uh, a nice anecdote from David Pryor at Ascension. Um, some of you might know him. He's, he was a renowned cardiologist. He's a system leader. And when I went to talk to him about age-friendly, you know, uh, we didn't know each other, and he's listening, and he's going like this, and he says, you know, Terry, I'd like to help you, but... Right now, I'm working on congestive heart failure. And I didn't have to know him, but as a nurse to doctor, I said, David, have you ever seen a patient with congestive heart failure that did not have these four M's? He said, okay. So he, they, they joined us then, which was really wonderful. Um, process measures here, again, and then the purpose of showing you this slide is to say the following. Some of the work you will have in your system already, you pop it out. Some of the work you don't, and you have to figure out how you'll capture it locally. But as long as you have a way to follow the progress with your 4Ms is, is something we then at IHI will work with you on. So you have to know your strata. I mentioned that. You have to figure out, uh, and again, these are false dichotomies as well, or or uh, sub subgroups, but just understand how things change as people get older. And every single one of us knows about you know an 85 year old who has beaten all the odds. But in general, you will see um, a functional decline with older age. So when we say get ready to measure, and before I came, I was on the phone for about half a day with IHI, making sure that I did all my homework and I could answer questions with you, is you know, just saying to people, so how do you currently record delirium? Um, how do you do it here? I'm not going to ask you to answer that question, but how do you do it? I bet half of you in the room would say, I know, and the other half would say, I don't know. How do you record it and screen? Same with dementia. How do you record depression? And how can you tell the patients on one or more of the drugs that they probably shouldn't be on? How do you record your mobility? And uh, what are your monthly counts? So we've been um, in a, a trial, and I'll show you that slide in a couple minutes, of our testing, and we're about to begin our scaling in September. Getting ready primary care teams. Same thing. How do you record dementia, depression, look at the medications, think about mobility, and find a system ally to kick off your work. What we find in the primary care is that they need to figure out, and yours, yours is answered because you have primary care, Dartmouth primary care, you know, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, a continuum. But when you don't, when you're a community hospital and you don't have that or you're a system that doesn't have that, you really need to figure out how to do this. I'm the chair of the board of Bassett Medical Center in Cooperstown, New York. Anybody ever be a, visited Bassett? 
Good. So, and um, people will say, oh, yeah, Baseball Hall of Fame, and that's a good way to think about it. But we cover 6,000 square miles of rural poverty upstate New York. It's bigger than the state of Connecticut. And I will tell you that when we think about allies, sometimes we refer to Albany, sometimes we refer to um, uh, New York City, sometimes Rochester. It's a moving target, and following information is hard. So I think about your system as one that's so advantaged in terms of doing this work. Scaling. In our first phase on the left, stage zero, that was our work where we really did our lit reviews and expert meetings, thought about age-friendly prototyping, uh, really committed as a community, uh, as an age-friendly health system community to the 4Ms, and began to test the model in the five health systems that I showed you, and also to think about how they would cover 4Ms, measuring the interventions, and then continuously improving our age-friendly model. Right now, testing, we have, we're still in our testing and prototype phase. We'll be in Boston September 20 and 21, closing the prototype phase with our first five sites because they have completed their work. And then the, to the right, stage two, is our uh, campaign spread. So we, have, we had about 250 applicants to do the next 100, and we will keep doing cohorts until we um, have saturated the country. So the campaign work is thinking about how we'll make sure that the evidence of improved outcomes for older adults is transcending across uh, all of the work that we do. And so this is the ambitious and uh, exciting work. So when we think about this, and, and maybe some of you have seen this before, this is Collins's work. Every, it's very overwhelming until you say, wait a minute, what, what is the way to drive this work? You say, well, how do we plan to do the work? How does our discussion today in this care team relate to what we want to do? How else might we approach this when you feel like you're hitting a barrier? I don't know about you, but when I'm practicing, there's 30 barriers of shift. And it's like, how else can we approach this? How will we recognize when we know we're beginning a tipping point or change? And how I would add, how will we celebrate it? And then how are we willing to change if and when we have complications? So you go broad, you talk like this, and then you've got to bring it right back so that people don't feel overwhelmed, throw up their hands, and walk away. We don't want that. We want to make sure that each day we're, we're moving along together. What are our results to date, more than 50,000, and this slide is irrelevant every week because the numbers change so dramatically, have received age-friendly care that's well-documented in their records. Five health systems, 26 sites, seven states, transforming care with 60 active test sites. This is our five-system prototyping group. Um, and again, each time I call them, they'll say, oh, that number's not right, now we do X. We have a groundswell of interest with uh, these organizations who want to join our Friends of Age Friendly. As Cater and I started, people would call and say, I would like to do that too. And Don, this phrase will be useful to you, and you probably know it because Don Berwick says it all the time, waste no will. If somebody says, I want to join you, you say, okay, right now, let's do this. And we do that in the niche program all the time. Anybody who wants in is in that moment. So waste no will. When somebody says they're ready, you be ready for them. And so that's why we started our Friends of Age Friendly call. Now, this call happens on Friday afternoons at 4 o'clock. I'll be doing one this afternoon. And as we watch the web, the I don't know what it is, Zoom or WebEx or whatever, we watch the numbers climb. And I'm, I'm humbled by the number of people who will take time on a Friday afternoon to join that call. Here's another example of something that's sort of fun. Yesterday, I shared an article with Ellen that came out in Forbes, and it's about the age-friendly health system movement. That was the title. I'm happy about that. It was written by a UCSF team. UCSF is not in this project. They just did it themselves. They called us, and they said, give us your stuff. We're going to do this. And they did, and they are. And so that's the beauty of the work. We're not... Um, 
going to confine anyone who says, if you give me the handbook, I know I can move this along quickly. And there's a team of geriatricians at UCSF who just decided that they could figure it out, and they're doing a great job. So there is a groundswell, and we will have the new community starting in uh, September. Community-based organizations. I was at N4A. That's the uh, Association of Area Agencies on Aging giving this talk. And, of course, they're going to say, where am I in this? And what if I don't want to have a hospital lead me? What if I want to lead? Well, there you go. Our CBOs address many of the social determinants, and they start the story at the kitchen table. They think about transportation and housing. And Ellen was telling me a clinical story earlier about people coming in. Maybe it was Dan and talking about how you just don't know what's going on in persons' lives, and we know that. I've been impressed by Kaiser Permanente, who they were one of the first systems to start giving Ubers to everybody to get them to and from appointments. And now I think that happens more and more. They also, Bernard Tyson, that's not his last name, but it's a T, maybe Thompson. Bernard has uh, begun building low-income housing for the number of people in the KP system who um, have no home. So CBOs address many of the social determinants. They support the forum model every day with thinking about what matters. And think about medication reconciliation. Now let's just get to the facts here as we know them at the moment. So of all prescriptions ever written, only half are ever filled. That's true. And of the half that are ever filled, only a third are ever taken as prescribed. And so what are we doing? And, and this medication reconciliation is still not something that we've grappled with successfully and reliably in this country. So um, that's an example, just sort of a shout out. Personal assistance, adult day services. I heard uh, Joanne talk yesterday about her, her thinking uh, related to the use of drones in the future of healthcare and how interesting that will be. We're working with CVS Minute Clinics to figure out how to embed 4Ms because people are going to CVS and how will we have that continuity of care. So all of the ways in which we think about uh, capturing, reducing waste from the system, making sure we're not redundant, making sure that we are in alignment, this is what we're coming up to. And whether Amazon does it or Troy Brennan does it, or Dartmouth does it, um, everybody's demanding it. And I, we want it, to, we in this audience want it. We, we don't like spinning our wheels. Diane Meyer from Mount Sinai, head of CAPSI, said to me maybe three years ago, she said, you know, Terry, geriatrics, we're like brownie in motion. She said, we just, you know, we, we're all over the place. And, we, and I said to her, Diane, I think we're colliding now in a very, pro, very exciting and appropriate way. So... All of these metaphors help us think about where we want to go. CBOs, we, have, we fund the administration of community living for a business institute for CBOs because, as you know, they get block grants, and they have been used to getting a certain amount of money to do a certain amount of things. And now we've encouraged them nationally to be entrepreneurs and to think about ways to package their services. And June Simmons in Los Angeles does this especially well. But here's the thing about it, and, and here's an inconvenient thing that I worry about. Community-based organizations, let's take the great city of Boston, Massachusetts. And if, if Mass General wants CBO work, they will either create it themselves and put the CBOs out of business, or they will buy the CBO because they are moving fast and they're a big engine and that's how that goes. When you say that in front of a CBO, they're heartbroken and insulted. But I only say it because I want to help them accelerate and, and be aware of the cross currents that go on. Um, and, and when they believe that they might sell their business to a big setting like a Mount Sinai or a Cornell, we have to have them think with their eyes wide open so that we can retain the great work they do and preserve um, the way in which they fit in the system. So that's, a, that's some thinking about CBOs. We have an action community that I just mentioned, and that relates to what's coming up in the fall. And this is a convening of like-minded organizations in a community to rapidly scale 
up the specific form changes that will make their system more age-friendly. There's no fee to participate. Organizations can enroll as many teams as they like. So Trinity, I hadn't really thought about Trinity Health. They cover 39 states, and Ascension is like in 40 states. And how do you wrap your head around being the chief nursing officer of that? Ann Hendrick is the chief nursing officer, and she's a co-leader of Age Friendly. And so she will be enrolling dozens of teams in their PDSA cycles, and they are doing collaboratories to learn from each other in a constant way across their settings. So this is our round coming up, and subsequent rounds will be planned. Becoming um, part of Age Friendly in a minute, I'll show you the broader website, but it, it's, it's easy to do. And um, as we said also, a lot of people are just taking off like rockets by themselves. What's involved in that work, so that you have a sense of what's coming up, is that these, the um, groups that join us participate in 90-minute interactive summit webinars, monthly content calls that help them focus on their 4Ms, Opportunities to share progress with other teams and present brief case studies, which has been very powerful for the groups. They really like that. They test age-friendly interventions and bring back uh, lessons learned. Here's an example from Anne Arundel. They, the literature is clear that if you're very dehydrated, you can get delirious. And so they were thinking about how they understand uh, volume intake with older people, and in this case, it's in the hospital setting. And if any of you, I'm going to start smiling, if any of you ever have done, completed an INO sheet, they're random. <laughs> we do the best we can, but they're not necessarily the, the science of intake and output. So, so Anne Arundel gave every single older person a water bottle that would not tip over and spill down their front, which the patients particularly liked, where they truly measure what the intake is. And so that simple, you say, well, that's not very complicated. I could do that, but you didn't. And so they're doing it, and it's nice to watch how that's working. <laughs> One time I was giving an elder abuse talk at the University of New Hampshire. It was years ago, and I, I completed my talk. I worked really hard on it. I was so pleased with myself. And one of the faculty at that school said, that's not very hard. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, but you haven't done it. <laughs> so, so it's all about you know moving the bar forward. You also submit data on a standard set of age-friendly measures that everybody looks at. These are referred to as run charts. And they, they, you have a dashboard on a standard set of process and outcomes. And this is where the IHI team comes in and makes it easy for the team. This is where people also become nervous because they say, that looks like a lot of work. I don't know if we can do that. And that's where IHI shows you how to do it. Options to join drop-in coaching sessions. We have drop-in coaching sessions every other week. And I particularly join them to listen to the questions because it helps me understand. And so there's a leadership track also along the bottom to support the scale-up, and we think that's really important too. Examples. Uh, so Anne Arundel has age-friendly champions throughout their system. I gave grand rounds there about six months ago, and I was so humbled by the response of that organization and what's going on. They truly, because they're smaller, they can really uh, saturate a lot faster. They've reduced patient length of stay by 26 hours, and Malik just wrote a paper talking about time that he has given back to patients, and they estimated 14 years of time given back to their patient population in one year. So that's per person, and I recommend you look at it. It was in the New England Journal, Malik Joshi. Ascension, align the age-friendly framework and interventions with their integrated scorecard goals. Heaven. When that happens, everything happens. If you get it on your scorecard, if you get it in your strategic plan, it will happen. Otherwise, it's seen as burden work, just extra burden. And here's, here's the the um, scene that flashes into my mind. I was at Mount Sinai on service as an attending nurse uh, in January, and there was we have a morning huddle. And the, uh, uh, the um, nurse manager says, well, we have a new process with the emergency room, and this is what happened. Oh. <laughs> Everybody went like that because they're sick of new processes, and they're sick of new projects, and they don't want 
any more add-ons. And so that's why the language is so important to say, let me make your day easier. Let me show you how this will collapse your work instead of expand it. And I see people nodding. Kaiser checks continuous improvements. I've been to their Woodland Hills ACE unit, and they're doing a magnificent job. And the ACE units are great because they're like the fishbowl for the organization. You go to the ACE unit, you test it, you try it, you learn it, and then you push it out throughout your system. So, And you have other staff rotate through the ACE unit, acute care for the elderly unit, so that they can get scaled up in their learning and take it back. So that's what I like about ACE units. But in general, most places don't have ACE units, and um, the places I work on don't. Uh, so it's a different model. That's where niche comes in quite handy. Patient-facing med lists, including nutrition, hydration instructions, and their palliative care clinic. So they're doing some very nice work. Providence St. Joseph's in the Northwest, increasing the visibility of senior needs. And they really do a lot of primary care, a guy named Doug Cook-Cook. Uh, increasing their false risk assessment, dementia, and depression screening. One of the things that I observe is when you figure out how to get this, and this is a no-brainer for you, when, when you figure out how to get it into your fabric, it works. If you decide you're going to hire a person to come in and do age-friendly work, you will fail because it's not your fabric. That person will take a new job in three years. They will be gone. The project will be gone. So don't do that. Age-friendly system future work. Uh, what's our foundation's 10-year vision? We're in it to win it, um, as the New York State Lottery likes to say. And we will explore potential grant-funded leadership opportunities. The SCAN Foundation recently joined us. We have business cases that have been formed for each of our five systems, and SCAN added money to each of the five business cases to work with people like Bob Kaplan at Harvard to make sure it's the tightest business case. I know there's tuck people in the room. To the tightest business case so that people say, I see why we have to do this. Uh, we're, we're now at a point where we hope the West Foundation, Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, um, will begin to join us. We're exploring potential grant-funded leaderships with uh, HRET, and I'm really grateful to Jay Bott, Malik, Marie Cleary-Fishman, and the whole team at HRET for how they're helping us. We were able to address their executive committee um, last month, and that was a huge boost for us. Rick Pollack and the Joint Commission. At Joint Commission, um, where I was also a visitor recently, we're talking about an age-friendly certification. That's at least two years off. And there's a part of me that says we do not need one more certification. But health systems like certifications because it distinguishes them. It gets you excited, and it raises everybody's bar. And that's how um, the uh, board of HRET talked about it. So Andy Bland is being particularly helpful. Tell your story. Um, this is Marshall Gantz, who I've never had the privilege to meet. Even though he's worked at Harvard, he's there. I've got to make that happen. But his team helps us with our work. And he says, movements, this is a social movement. He says, movements have narrative. They tell stories because they're not just about rearranging economics and politics. They're rearranging meaning. And they're not just about redistributing goods. They're about figuring out what is good. And that's just so powerful. And he is so powerful. He organized the California Grape Pickers. I know many of you know that. And he thinks about uh, narratives. When Don Berwick came to visit me in 2015 to talk about age-friendly, he said, Terry, tell me a story. I'm not telling Don Berwick a story. I'm used to p-values. You know, if it's not a p.001, I'm not talking about it with Don Berwick. And he said, no, 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 tell me a story. Now, these days, everybody tells their story, and it's good, and people like Marshall would remind us how important they are so that it comes home to the personal. So age-friendly, lots of Gantt charts, lots of you know uh, electronic health record, but there's a story for everybody, and I promise you. So you, I, I get a call at least once a day, I bet you do too, from people saying, do you have a minute to talk about my mother-in-law? Yes, I do. Okay, so yesterday the call was, my mother-in-law has Parkinson's. She is failing. She's been in two car accidents. She um, has uh, begun to be incontinent. And my wife is sick. We just had our grandmother move out. And it goes on and on. And so, so you say to yourself, those stories are what power me forward every day. Because I say, we're not even close. 
and Marshall Gantz in his storytelling. The other thing that Marshall Gantz says, if deep change depended on solely on an outside intervention, it would never happen. So the only way this work happens is if the fabric of Dartmouth-Hitchcock says, we think this is important, we want to do it. And so, you know, I know that you've got amazing leadership in aging here, and I'm a little biased, I think Ellen's kind of special. Uh, but that deep change, it really is so important. So IHI, Age Friendly, the Johnny Hartford Foundation, thank you for listening today and for the ways in which you will think about it. I'm going to leave you with a glance at a website, if, if I can do that. And Rick showed me how. He said to minimize the screen. I will do that. And I'm going to just show you one website, which should be here. And if it isn't, we'll deal. Okay. And let's see. There it is. So this is the intranet at IHI for age-friendly health systems. And look to the left where it says resources. Every geriatric care protocol you can imagine is there. Getting started. This is how UCSF just said, fine, I got this under control. Measurement. Your measurement guide, which is about a 30-page guide for how to do this with nominators. Did I say that right? Numerators and denominators, excuse me. Action community webinars, it's all there. And so whatever work there is useful to you, I recommend it to you. But mostly I just want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak to you on an August Friday and to say that it's a privilege to be able to be in this very you know, august community. And thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. I know Thank Ellen you, said we, that there uh, might be questions. Yeah, we have a few minutes for questions. You comments. ask, you ask, and Ellen will answer. Go ahead. <laughs> Anybody want to go ahead, sir? I, I enjoyed your presentation very much. You referred to a patient-facing medication list, but didn't define it, and I'm wondering what exactly that is. Sure, it, that's where you can go on an electronic health record, and the patient will work with you. To ver they're seeing the screen with you. They're verifying their understanding of what those pills are. They're adding. So this is Tom Del Banco's work. It, it's my chart, but now it's like our interactive chart where people go in and change it. They type it themselves. So that's the patient-facing part. They'll say, no, I don't take that one. I take this one. No, it's not that. I don't take a full pill. I take a half a pill. And so this is coming up, too. And um, the, there's some nice work going on with Tom and with Mary about the way that patients adjust their own record. Yeah. Sure. Well, Hi. I had a question about whether the systems that you're piloting would have long-term care embedded within their system for the most part, and how you might suggest if those are disconnected portions yeah. across up here, you know, what that's been like. So we do have long-term care, uh, and let's take it two ways. We have nursing homes, and then we have long-term community care. And it, I, when I, I knew I was coming here, I asked IHI how much data we have on long-term care, and the answer is not as much as our, our acute care yet. But it is so on the radar. Now, long-term care should move pretty quickly when we shift and really focus, because if you're in a long-term care facility, you've got your MDS data, for heaven's sakes. And that should be really uh, ready to fold right into this work. And when you think of your uh, <laughs> continuing care communities, um, the way in which their different protocols work. So we're, we're starting. I think the place where there's the most long-term care work is at Ascension. And so I can get you in touch with them. Yeah. Um, you talk about scaling up uh, from what we're already uh, an impressive network of large organizations. And we're in the lead way, you would scale down too. Um, and I uh, wonder if you have thoughts about that. Sure, give me an example of scaling down. Uh, the largest practice outside of Dartmouth in New Hampshire. Um, I think is about uh, 20 positions. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned I was in Boise, I was in Idaho, and um, that I worked at, at Bassett Medical Center. And, and every <coughs> component of the work we do has to be personalized to the location, which is why we're in such varied locations. Our work in the Northwest, Oregon, we're in some very rural areas, we're in some urban areas, and you have to just keep 
doing this PDSA cycle saying, how does this work? I had an interesting comment from uh, a group of clinicians in Idaho. And I ha I'm still thinking about what they said. They said, you know, when you live five hours away from an acute care setting, you're making a choice about how you want your care delivery. I think that's a little harsh, but I think that what we will learn is how telehealth will help transform this work as well. And so, um, um, I, it, by the way, if you have good ideas, send them forward, and we'll take them to the group and join our Friends of Age Friendly. Go ahead. Yeah, um, I'm going to ask a question at the end of this. First, I just want to thank you for this amazing presentation. Thanks. And thank Ellen for bringing you here. We love Ellen, too. <laughs> um, and make a plug for next week's Grand Rounds with two of our palliative care faculty who will be speaking to them, um, finding out what matters, and oh, nice. talking about the serious illness conversation work that they've been doing. So please, everybody, come. Absolutely. Um, my question is, you know, another concept that IHI has been working with, and we have too, is around co-production. Yep. And I'm just curious, um, yeah. some of the challenges of co-production in the aging population and the palliative care population has to do with the amount of time people who have limited time want to spend helping us design systems to help them live better. Right. And I wonder, how have you included patients and families in the design of the work that you're doing and the um, assessment of whether it's making a difference for them? Sure. So we have patient representatives who have joined all of our meetings. And I would say of our five sites, the place that really does the most magnificent job is Anne Arundel. I went to one of their evening family-led, uh, um, um, I forget the title of the group, but there were about 100 people there. And they came in, and they guide Anne Arundel in the way in which Anne Arundel delivers care. And they're very outspoken about what they like about the place and what they don't and what they would adjust, and they very, very helpful. So I think they do the strongest job. We, in our age-friendly health system work, have invited and have um, uh, older people join and inform us, argue with us. Now, here's, here's where I'm going to laugh a little bit. Very often in the beginning, the patients were people like Lucian Leap. Lucian Leap is not a patient. You know, he, he's a Harvard professor. And so it's good to have him there. Uh, who's the other person who came? He used to be head of Dana-Farber. You know what I mean? Just because they're aided does not mean they're good patient representatives. <laughs> and so, so uh, they're interesting people. But you have to have the real people there. And so I, I would say I learned the most from Anne Arundel, and we continue to invite people in. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for a superb talk. I'm wondering if you could say something about so the nature of commitment and investment by senior leadership. Mm -hmm. um, you know, on the ground, um, much of the work is done by the lowest income workers in the healthcare system, um, home care and in long-term care facilities. The physicians are the lowest paid physicians in the healthcare system, primary care doctors, geriatricians. Um, and then we can sometimes look up and see decisions being made, like Mass General buying the CEOs, um, and that, that, that seem to worsen, um, if you will, income equality. Yep. Um, how can senior leadership um, convey their commitment and their investment in a way that improves morale rather than detracting from morale? Right. And one of the things that I didn't give a strong enough shout-out to is the uh, health equity piece of this work, which is a drumbeat um, and so important. So in this phase one, we only worked with leaders who committed to work with us. Those are the easy groups, so the, the Ascensions, the Trinities, uh, Kaiser, because we had a friend there, uh, uh, Narav Shah, who's on the board of the John A. Hartford Foundation, was also Kaiser. So you start with those groups to try to get it right. They have to be part of the narrative going forward. Key leaders, when, when I'm going to say it again, when people like Dave Pryor and, and Don Berwick get up and say this work is important, it begins to happen. But your question is more profound, and and I can't begin to suggest that I know the answer, but that is why are we so out of kilter um, with 
with healthcare, health access, um, who gets paid for what work. Um, you know, in geriatrics, we don't have a tube, drip, or drain. And I'm reading the CMS language right now saying that they might collapse from five to two, and that will decimate primary care and geriatrics. So voice, getting to Washington. I'm not allowed to lobby. I'm a 501c3, but I certainly watch and see how people say, we have to be very engaged. When I was a dean, I'm going to, this is going to seem like a non sequitur, but it isn't. When I was dean at NYU Nursing, somebody would say to me, this is wrong. And I'd say, they'd say, what do we do? And I'd say, number one, read the newspaper. Number two, vote. Number three, get out there and know your Congress people. Push for what you believe in. You know, I'm in Bernie Sanders region here, so I don't have to say that. But, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, it's it's. Uh, I I uh, have never worked harder in my life now because it just seems like the the Washington story is so out of kilter, and so it it we're at a moment where it's got to be this way instead of this way. So anything you can do to get that groundswell, Marshall Gans get your movement going so that it can't be ignored is sort of how I'd answer you. And I know that's a grandiose answer, but I do believe it. So. Thank you so much, Sarah. Pleasure.